did I not see this coming? Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm coming to you from Salt Lake City, Utah, in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm going to give a little preamble before we get started. But if you're listening to this, you're probably impacted in some way by the coronavirus. Such an interesting time and an interesting experience to be part of right now. And so I'm going to be podcasting a few episodes. This episode was recorded before the outbreak sort of reached the situation that, that, that we are in now. And so I apologize for the heaviness of the content. I am hoping that if we stay self-isolated in the next few weeks, that I'll be able to have some time and energy to put out more for you. But since many of you have followed me along this journey, I just want to tell you that I love you. You're in my thoughts and prayers. I hope you're safe. I hope you're well. And I hope that your heart isn't troubled too much. I offer you a blessing of generosity and spirit and kindness and that you won't be affected by scarcity or fear or any suffering right now. And I would just also extend an invitation to listeners everywhere that if you are within your power to do so, be generous to your community right now. If you are an employer, find a way to let your employees work from home if possible. And if you can't afford to, especially a lot of my listeners are people with families and with children, find a way to help other families with children if the parents have to work. If we can all, in a very Mormon way, put our shoulders to the wheel here, even if you're not Mormon, this is sort of the best parts of our community. We rally together when there's a major, major crisis or disaster. So I hope everyone out there is uh, listening as well and are taking the precautions seriously not as a means to panic, but as a way to be a responsible citizen. And again, I'm just sending all my love and calm to you. With that, we're going to talk about some heavy things, which I don't know why we always do that. I give a cheerful greeting and then we go straight to the the gut punch. But today we're going to be talking about decriminalization. And I wanted to tell a story before we get into the episode and the interview with Shirley Draper and Christina Rossetti about decriminalization of polygamy in Utah. Some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but I think it's I think it's really important and I want you to hear it to understand why I've come to the conclusions that I have and why the podcast has taken the direction that it has. One of the things that I've that I've heard that is kind of disappointing is people feel like my podcast has taken a different direction than when they initially listened to it. I've tried to think about that and understand what that means, but I think what that means is People are upset that I have sort of humanized fundamentalists for other people. The podcast was really popular right from the beginning. And I want to believe it's not because the podcast just echoed back the general opinions of people. But I wonder sometimes that it did that. I was very anti-polygamy when I started the podcast. And as I started interacting with the people whose very stories I was telling and getting feedback from them, I just felt like it was a natural course of things to let people as often as possible tell their own stories. If that has humanized people for you, I won't apologize for that. I don't, I don't think that there's anything wrong in getting more information. I also think that allowing the faithful believers who are current polygamists or practicing fundamentalists tell their story is not some big crime to humanity. I haven't given platform to hate. I've just let people speak to their own experiences. 
And I don't see a lot of people converting to fundamentalism from that. In fact, I don't know anyone that has heard that and said, you know what, this is this is a lifestyle or a choice I want to make. In fact, it's opposite. But what I have seen it do is build bridges and connections across communities where people can get resources and access to those things. So if you're one of the people that is, is disappointed with the direction that this podcast has taken, it's not anti-polygamy enough. I I can only say I'm sorry that you're disappointed with that. There are plenty of other platforms where you can hear about the horrors of polygamy. I think I've adequately covered those and will continue to cover those here. I have not become converted to the doctrine myself. If anything, this journey has led me to believe that this is not something I believe is of God. And I've said this at, at the risk of the relationships to many polygamous friends that I have. We just disagree on this. They believe it's a divine principle. I see no divinity in it. And yet somehow those people allow me access to their lives because they know that I respect that they believe differently than I do. I think people want a stronger condemnation for me on this. They want me to, you know, wear a trumpet that says, Mormon polygamy is bad, Mormon polygamy is bad. I think the large body of work that I've given my community have explored that topic plenty. So I say that because the story I'm going to tell you is going to reflect why I act the way I do and how I make the decisions I do. And I'm sorry if that's not good enough for people and it might be too much for others. I can only follow the integrity of my heart. And when new information arises for me, I have to consider it. I think one of the most damaging things that I inherited from my Mormon community, and of course, this is not exclusive to Mormonism, but it's very, very uh, pervasive in Mormonism, is having a brittle opinion, not being able to change my mind when new information comes. It's so funny because in Mormon theology, we have this doctrine of eternal progression where we can learn and grow as we develop. Uh, Creators in, in embryo, right? We're always growing and growing into the eternities. Yet I don't see that reflected in a lot of my Mormon communities. People are afraid to change. Growth is a sign of, of change and something to be feared. Part of that is because we've developed a culture of aversion towards anything that makes us uncomfortable. In Mormonism, we're taught that if something makes us uncomfortable, it's of the devil. If something doesn't feel right to us, that is Satan trying to trick us. The problem with this interpretation of those particular scriptures is that In order for us to grow and to change our mind, we have to be uncomfortable. We have to be confronted with things that we don't understand, sometimes things that are fearful for us. That is how we grow. Growth can't happen until we are uncomfortable, and change is uncomfortable. So allow me to tell this story, and then I'll get on into the podcast. So in many ways, our doctrine and our cultural practices are in conflict with one another. We're supposed to be eternally progressing, but yet most people just say the same. If you go to an LDS ward house, you can hear lessons that are basically the same that you could hear 10 years ago. People just regurgitate the same things because they've mistaken growth for, I don't know, satanic's, Satan's influence. And that's one of the greatest tragedies of, of how our culture, I think, has failed us. But I'm going to tell you a story about how I changed. And if you have heard this before, forgive me, but I want to tell you that when I first was just a sweet little LDS lady, a little Mormon mama out in Stansbury Park in a rural community in the desert in Utah, I was just plugging away, trying to do my best, very, very faithful, trying to build the kingdom of God. So I was just out there keeping my head down, 
raising my, I had a little baby at the time, my first baby. I was struggling with postpartum depression, didn't understand really much about it. My life was kind of a miserable little cloud, but I didn't know anything different. I was really, I was told I was really fortunate to have what I had. And so I wanted to believe it, but for some reason it was was difficult for me. So I found a lot of relief and connection to the outside isolation that I felt in books. And for some reason, I stumbled upon a book called Half the Sky. It was called Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide by Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudun. Nick Kristof is a columnist for the New York Times, and they were writing about the issues in the world that affected women. And it was really my first foray into the experiences of women around the world outside of my own. It was sort of this book that opened my mind. Now, there have been critiques of the book since, but I have to say this was sort of the the key that unlocked the door to this awakening to the experiences other women were having globally. And and the book is pretty bleak. Uh, In some ways, I connected with a lot of the experiences of women worldwide, but I learned about some things that I had never known before. Uh, FGM, female genital mutilation, forced rape, uh, human trafficking, things like that. And so I was just horrified. I was particularly horrified when I read um, the chapter about Women in the DRC, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, they were dealing with mass rape. And I mean, mass rape soldiers, guerrilla soldiers would come in and rape in complete villages of women, maim them, mutilate them, and then turn them into sexual slaves. And I was horrified by this. I just, I couldn't imagine that this was actually happening. As I sat there in my comfortable little home in Stansbury Park, to to understand that women around the world were going through something. So as is my nature, I I put my shoulder to the wheel and I wanted to mobilize. And so I did. I found there was a woman that I had known from high school. Her name was Missy. And I consider her one of my feminist, one of my fed, feminist midwives. She helped birth me <laughs> into a feminist. But she was the only one I had known about that was sort of talking about this issue. So we connected and and we wanted to do something to help these women. Missy had heard of a an organization called Women for Women International which she had researched and found to be the most ethical organization on the ground helping these women. And that's another thing that the book talks about. It talks about sort of the impact that nonprofits have had. Well-meaning nonprofits have gone over to try to help these people, and it's created more chaos. And so Missy wanted to avoid that, so she found uh, Women for Women International, where the money would go directly to post-rape survivors in the Congo. So we decided to start organizing 5Ks and a few events like a yoga event. And we started doing this. We just got to work and started raising money for these women in the Congo. And I got to say, it felt really good. Uh, It was successful. It wasn't hard to get people to come to these events. And we would send this money over to these women. As we got along in it, though, I remember a few things that sort of changed my mind. One of them was we did a 5K at Wheeler Farm. And we made all these posters. I wanted the run to... I, I felt like it was a way for people to connect with the women that they were helping. And so in an effort to show that connection, along the 5K path, we had pictures of women in the Congo and some quotes. But I had no cultural competency at the time. And so I found any picture of an African woman working hard in, um, or maybe suffering, maybe a woman that was emaciated and starving or a woman that was carrying, you know, a ton of bricks or stones on her back. And I brought them to the the race feeling really good about myself, thinking that this is going to have a lot of emotional impact. This is going to make a big deal. And Missy was kind of, she was very sweet to me, but kind of pushed back and found a way to not use those posters. 
She then gave me a book called King Leopold's Ghost. And that is a book that has probably opened me up in a worldview in a way that nothing ever has. This is a book that truly changed my life in a way that no scripture or church lesson ever did. And that was kind of a crazy experience for me. The story of King Leopold's Ghost is about the king of Belgium. He was the king in the late 1890s to the early 1900s. And Belgium was a small, sort of innocuous country over in Europe that no one paid attention to. King Leopold was bothered by that. He felt like he had more to give in it, and he wanted to build wealth for his own country. At the time, the majority of European countries had colonized sort of the borders of the African continent. So they had been up and down the Ivory Coast declaring land for the UK or for France or for other countries there they were colonizing in the name of God, kingdom, and country. And this was sort of happening as early as the 1400s. But what was really interesting to Leopold is that the interior of Africa was largely unclaimed. And so he saw that as an opportunity for his country to to make a name for themselves. He followed obsessively the, the actions of explorers down in those areas, and he contacted them. And he realized that there was a lot of wealth in the interiors of Africa. But he knew that this would be a hard sell to anyone in Europe or in his country because either it would become competitive really fast or he would deal with uh, apathy. Why would people want to care about this country? Well, he found a way for people to care. There was a large anti-slavery movement happening at the time because some of the other imperialist countries that had gone in, like the British, had enslaved a lot of people. Slavery was a discussion that had happened in in the Americas because of the transatlantic slave trade. And it was largely seen as a terrible thing. So King Leopold, in a sort of a very clever way, organized a conference where he invited the largest anti-slave European organizations to attend, the largest explorers and geographers and everything in the name of science and geography and exploration. And he invited everyone over and formed a a coalition. The coalition was called the International African Association. And... It was seen as this big philanthropic organization that was going to go over and explore the interior of Africa, fight slavery, and help sort of help the poor black African. He initially got a lot of traction because he started letting people who had been to Africa tell the horrors of the conditions of black Africans, especially those in the slave trade. And so what would happen often is wealthy white Belgians and Europeans would hear these stories and be horrified just like I was in you know, reading Half the Sky in my little book in Sansbury Park. And so just like me, these women wanted to mobilize and they, uh, all these women's societies would pop up, missionary societies would pop up, and they would use their influence to raise money for and to send people over to what we now know as Congo. So the, the Belgians went in and colonized it, and it became, it had a lot of momentum. Here's what um, Adam Hochschild says, the author of King Leopold's Ghost. He says, a king of a small country with no public interest in colonies, he recognized that a colonial push of his own would require a strong humanitarian veneer. Curbing the slave trade, moral uplift, and the advancement of science were the aims he would talk about, not profits. In 1876, he began planning a step to establish his image as a philanthropist and advance his African ambitions. He would host a conference of explorers and geographers. So that's what he did, got all this traction. They went over there. And what it basically did, long story short, was open the gates for some of the worst human rights violations of all time. 
missionaries went in and paved the way. And they came in with this general understanding that the black African needed to be rescued. At the time, the interior of Africa, 80% was of that entire continent was being run by local indigenous tribal leaders. And there were some things like there were polygamy in some of the tribes that was seen as horrifying to the Europeans. And there were some some practices that people saw as abhorrent. And so they used those things to justify their encroachment. And they were going to go rescue these people from this. Unfortunately, what they didn't, what they failed to recognize is the complexity of these tribes that have been going on for hundreds of years, who had large autonomy, uh, the conditions of people living in those tribes were mostly positive. But because they, some of them, uh, their nudity, for example, their diet, their sexual practices were foreign to European, mostly Protestant and religious values, they were seen as abhorrent and something they needed to be rescued from. So King Leopold had his entrance. These geographers, missionaries, and um, explorers worked together, and they colonized this land, and it turned out to be one of the most horrific things in African history. They exploited and enslaved, even though (laughs) this was so ironic, it was supposed to fight slavery, they ended up forcing villages to mine local ivory and rubber. And if they didn't mine the rubber, they would cut off their hands. Um, in fact, there are very graphic photos that you can look up if you if you need to of, of this hand trade. They would cut off hands, hang up the hands along the villages of the men and women and children in the communities saying, this is a warning if you don't do it. I mean, they were it sort of became known as Congo's uh, brand, these buckets of severed hands. And this was just one way people were flogged, they were maimed, they were imprisoned, tortured. There was a lot of sexual slavery happening from white imperial colonialists. So this idea that it was for the greater good, all it was is it made Belgium crazy wealthy. I mean, we're talking, they lined their palaces with gold, gold leaf on everything. They became one of the wealthiest countries in the world because they were able to exploit the work of black Africans in the name of missionary work. I had never understood this history before. I I didn't understand it. I think I was coming from a place that black Africans were suffering because they were black Africans. That was sort of my cultural upbringing in a very racist, sort of sheltered, American, exceptionalist, imperialist sort of way. I had no idea that it was a stable region until missionaries showed up to rescue these people. And of course, I was horrified because what it was, it was a giant mirror especially the parts about these women's societies, these women who had never been to Congo, who had never even met an African, who only knew about the tropes. And their intentions were well. They wanted to, they were appalled to hear about the polygamy in Congo. They were appalled to hear about the the nakedness, the nudity, the, the sort of savagery of that. And, you know, there were rumors of cannibalism that came. They were saying, you know, black Africans were cannibals. What's funny is, Black Africans on the continent, when white people came, they felt the same way about white people. They thought that they were cannibals. There was just this cultural misunderstanding. And to have your land invaded and your families decimated and entire tribes wiped away, if they fought or resisted colonial rule, their entire tribe was wiped out in an act of genocide. All of this because, you know, these... White Europeans were concerned about saving someone who they thought were lesser than them. This lesson has been one of the most important lessons of my entire life because I was that person. I was worried about the poor black African. Never been to Congo, never met someone from Congo, 
didn't know anything about the region, and yet I was trying to rescue someone. And so the theories of most most people, including this, uh, in fact, I would actually recommend there's there's another good essay out there about tourism in Mexico, charity tourism, and it's called To Hell with Good Intentions by Ivan Illich. I think I'm saying that right. You can look it up, To Hell with Good Intentions. And it's basically this idea of like, you know, white Americans going down to Central America or South America to sort of build orphanages and stuff like that. And sort of the, how it makes everyone feel good, but the, the real impact of that. And, and the overall arc of all of these critiques are saying, there's nothing wrong with wanting to help people. They're not trying to discourage you from helping people, but you should only be helping people in the corners of your own sphere of influence and your own culture as much as possible because those are the things that you understand. If you want to help outside of your cultural awareness or geographical awareness, then you have to be working very closely with people on the ground who understand that. Otherwise, the fallout for your good intentions are really, really devastating. Good intentions aren't enough. That is the hardest lesson to learn. And that's such a frustrating lesson, right? Like, well, you mean well. Everyone gets so defensive when they're trying so hard to be good. Well, I tried. I was only trying to be nice. Why is it, why is it turning out this way? Why can't people be more grateful for, for that? And the reality is because if you go into a culture or even a family, try this with a family. Think about trying to make a family that you know of change to be more like your family. There's not an awareness about the, maybe the only problems in your own family. There's just this idea that you come in that your family is somehow better than theirs and that you know better. That is one of the most harmful attitudes we can have. And so because of that, Missy and I, we stopped Utah for Congo. We turned it over to local Congolese refugees. And um, I continue giving money to Women for Women every once in a while in the hopes that, you know, I haven't abandoned something that I cared about. But even that, you know, I question sometimes. And so I've really turned my efforts to my own community. And that's why I do the work in my own community. Working in polygamous communities was a little interesting because I had felt like it was my own community. Uh, we have so much in common. And so I felt like I was culturally competent enough to do that. I was wrong. I learned that there was so much to learn about each cultural community. And I'm always trying to be aware of that now. And because I have a platform, I try to be responsible with that. And I try to find people in each community who are doing the work and support their efforts. That's the way I can best do this ethically. And I would invite everyone listening to do the same. But also, and most importantly, you need to check your motivations. Why are you wanting to help people? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's how I'm wired. I want to be helpful. That's probably just how I'm wired. I get validation out of it. It makes me feel good to be helpful. But sometimes I think, especially when I started this podcast, it was a sideways way to address some of the angst I'd felt in my own life about my own church community and my own family relationships and my own marriage and the, the way that I live my, my Mormonism. And I wasn't ready to address that. So I used other communities to address that. And I think that, that could be very dangerous when we do that. I've seen the impacts of that. And I've tried to be very careful about the work that I do. But I always think of those white female societies in Belgium trying to help the poor black African and the devastation that attitude, those good intentions, that money that they sent had and still continues to have. The region is still destabilized because of the horrible, horrible way that people, quote unquote, tried to help 
this country and profited off of it in return. So that's the story that I tell as we talk about decriminalization. That's the story that I tell you so you can hopefully understand where I'm coming from. It's not enough to believe that we have better lives than someone else and that we need to help them to us. Rather, we need to go into communities that we don't understand and learn and understand more and see how they can help us. It should be a relationship. It should be symbiotic. And we should be asking ourselves the same thing. One of the things that's so frustrating to me is if you go into a polygamous community with a judgment that they are struggling and suffering so much and that your life is better, already you've put yourself at an authority and a power advantage over people that you want to help. You're assuming that your life and your way of living is better. When I was helping women in the Congo, I was assuming my life was better. I was a depressed, very depressed, very sad, isolated, lonely housewife. And yet I somehow thought that I was better. We need to be looking at that. And if we're going to ask people to change their entire religious theoretical framework, their whole spiritual identity, if we're going to tell them to abandon those things, I want to know if we're willing to do the same thing about the the values and the beliefs that we hold sacred, that we have been taught are the best things. I think if we are willing to walk with people and do the work ourselves along with them, then real change can happen. So don't get me wrong. I'm not discouraging you from doing good work. I'm just asking us to please be cautious about how we do it. Please be thoughtful about how we do it. Please work in the communities and cultures that you understand first. Get your own houses in order. That's such good, helpful advice. Charity should not be tourism. It should not be something that reinforces our belief of superiority over another group of people. And we certainly have no place helping communities that we have no cultural awareness or understanding of. And so with that story, we're going to talk about decriminalization. And hopefully that can give you some background and some context as to why I do what I do, how I do it, and why I approach the subject material the way that I do. So we're going to get into the interview with my good friend Shirley Draper, a woman who comes from the FLDS who lived in these communities, and who I now uh, sort of take my lead from and support her efforts. And Dr. Christina Rossetti, a friend uh, that I've had on the program many times, and she studies Mormon fundamentalism with me. Okay, with me, I have back on uh, Dr. Christina Rossetti. Can you say hello? Hello. And uh, also back on, I have Shirley Draper. Shirley, you've been on the podcast, right? I have. Okay. I, I thought we've, I was just talking about this on the preamble after doing 170 plus episodes. Like I forget who I've talked to about what, when. So <laughs> understandable. Uh, well, the, the thing is I've known you, we've known each other for a few years now, right? Yes, indeed. Can I, can I tell people my first impression of you? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear that. Okay. When I, so you know, I am podcasting about the FLDS. People start contacting me. There's all this like this energy like, oh, my gosh, the poor people in Colorado City. What are we going to do? And I'm like, I don't know, but we're going to do something. And then Shirley Draper comes online and starts just very 
politely but firmly asking me some questions. And you were so fiercely protective of your community. Right away, I was like, this is the woman I can trust. Because you were kind of skeptical of me. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say, yes. And do you want to talk about why really quick? So we can, let's talk about you and your background and why this, why you would be skeptical of someone like me coming into your community. (laughs) Okay. So, all right. My background is, of course, I was born and raised FLDS, uh, born in Colorado City and lived there all my life, was placed into an arranged marriage. I was in a polygamous marriage. And after Warren Jeffs rose to power, I chose to take my kids and leave. And it was a really, really difficult decision um, because I knew I had to leave my family and my friends and my community and my support structure, my identity and all of that. But beyond that, it was really difficult because um, making my way into the outside world, being FLDS, it was, it was an extremely torturous process. Um, it was hostile to me. The outside world was hostile and I wasn't welcome in the outside world. And so because of that, um, it was a long, long process to leave. But uh, one of the things that I saw happening even before I left and even after I left was a lot of exploitation uh, of the population, a lot of exploitation of, of people who are really naive, first of all, about what the outside world is. And, and second of all, you know, people who are really opportunistic and willing to exploit people's misery, traffic in their misery, tell stories that don't really belong to them, traffic and trauma that hasn't been dealt with. And so every time I'd hear of anybody doing a <laughs> documentary or a movie or a series or a podcast or anything about the fundamentalists, about the polygamists, then I knew it was going to be told from this hegemonic perspective of uh, somebody from the mainstream that could not possibly understand what they were talking about and and the kind of impact it was going to have on the population. And so that is how I looked at you initially when I <laughs> heard. When that's I heard fair. <laughs> that's fair. No, I, that's, that's what I, I mean, I talked about this already in the preamble about, you know, my work with Congo and how I decided to do things differently. And so I think you and I were able to get over that pretty quickly because as soon as I knew what you were saying and who you were and where you came from, I was like, all right, I'm on board. How can I help? Like, what can we do? And I don't know that you get a lot of that. Do you get a lot of that? Well, um, People who whose hearts are in the right place, I do get that from them, and so and that's one of the ways I can always tell because I'm I'm usually really easy to eager to accuse and kind of let the chips fall where they may. And people who really want to help and who um, who come out from an, like an evidence based uh, perspective and really want to have a good impact are always. Um, willing to hear feedback and what's working and what's not working and people who are only in it for, you know, for their own glory or for an, for an underhanded reason are always defensive and never want to hear feedback. And so that's, it really weeds people out. Quickly. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's, let's get into this bill then because all three of us really have taken a lot of heat in the last few weeks, especially, surely it's so interesting because one of the biggest criticisms that is, have been thrown my way is that Christine and I are outsiders. We don't listen to victims. We should have listened to people who actually lived it. And I'm, and I'm like, right, I do. I do. I'm following Shirley Draper with all my heart. Tell me about 
that criticism and which I actually think is valid. I think that's a valid critique that, you know, we should be suspicious of outsiders involvement. We should be listening to victims. But why don't we talk about the framing of this and then let's get into the bill and what it covers and and why we've come out to support it, et cetera. Well, I mean, I think one of the things, and, and I've heard this criticism a lot too, that we're not listening to victims. But my question is, who gets to define victim? So, you know, a lot of people are really willing to, and up until, you know, this week, have been completely justified in saying victim of polygamy because polygamy has been a felony. And so for the hundreds of, and, and actually thousands of people that I have helped people from polygamous communities, most of them do not consider themselves to be victims of polygamy. Their definition of the kind of victimizations that they've encountered is abuse or domestic violence or sexual assault or, you know, fraud or those kinds of abuses, things that we can really wrap our hands around that we can really define in law and we can actually do something about and that, and that there is justice readily available for. And so mostly, you know, I've been attacked quite a bit for supporting this bill and saying that, that I'm not listening to victims of polygamy. And I'm a little bit sensitive of that because, because I really, I mean, my life is victim advocacy. That's what I do. Because the people who are saying are not victims of polygamy aren't being counted as victims in this conversation. And I really chafe under that idea. So let me just say something about you, Shirley. For those who, you can go back and listen to my interview with Shirley, but Shirley is the real deal. And I'm telling you, I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying you're my new prophet. But Shirley grew up in the FLDS. She was a plural wife. She left. She escaped, if you will, if you want to use that word. She went to through a lot of hardship, a lot of sacrifice, sacrifice that I will never even be able to understand to get her education and her degree. You got your master's in social work. Is that right? No, my bachelor's in social work and my master's in public administration. Public administration. And then she chose, like a lot of uh, people that I love from that community, to give back to her town and community, to use her resources and education to help her community. So you went back in and you uh, started Cherish Families, which is an organization. Do you want to tell us about that really quick? Cherish Families is an organization that was started by People from fundamentalism, and I'm going to use that word instead of polygamy, because that's the terminology that fundamentalists use, and I believe in calling people what they want to be called. And so it was started by people from fundamentalism. The majority of the employees are from fundamentalism, and we do all kinds of advocacy, wraparound, legal services, housing, mentoring, education, tons and tons of like basic needs, services for anybody from fundamentalism. And so it's just, it's a full service wraparound kind of nonprofit. That's not quite as sexy though as saying that you rescue people from polygamy. (laughs) Well, and because we don't believe we do rescue people from polygamy, we don't think we rescue anybody from anything. We give people options and opportunities and resources for them to make the best decisions that they want to make for their lives. I don't believe anybody needs to be rescued ever. So before we get into the bill, and Christina, you can weigh in on this as well. Why why wouldn't you want to rescue someone from polygamy? I mean, we we know we've heard the the data cited at us quite aggressively this week about how awful polygamy is, how terrible it is, what it does to communities, what it does to families, what it does to women and children. Why shouldn't we be pulling all of these people who don't know better out of these systems? 
So maybe I should just clear something up. I am not a fan of polygamy. I think it can be, I can't, I think it can be harmful. I can just state for the record, I'm not a fan of regular marriage monogamy either for the same reasons. I feel like that there are a lot of really inherent harms in most patriarchal structures. And I count regular marriage and almost all religion in that, I, you know, our current political structure. There are so many patriarchal structures that I don't think are, are useful for human beings. But that doesn't mean that I should have to tell somebody that they shouldn't live it or make their decisions for them. And so because of that, like I would not ever tell a woman who came in needing services, domestic violence services, and she's in a monogamous marriage, I would never presume to tell her that she should not ever be married. I think that is really harmful you know, to do that to people, to try to override their sense of self-determination and their ability to make their own decisions. And so it's for that reason that I would, that I don't think people need to be rescued really from any structure. There are a lot of religious structures that work for some people and don't work for others. And my job is not to tell people what that is. If someone comes in and they want to, to leave a community or they want to leave a marriage, I'm going to give them resources to do what they want to do. And if they come in and they want to stay in polygamy, because like it or not, there are some really positive things about polygamy and things that work for women. And and nobody really wants to confront that. And I don't know if you want to get into that here, but that it's not my job to tell people that they shouldn't live their religion or they shouldn't live in the family structure or the culture that they live in. So my job is to give people resources and opportunities to make the best decisions for themselves. And again, I I grew up in an LDS monogamous marriage to a really nice guy who we had on the podcast too, who I now have told people that I've divorced from. But part of our issue, one of our main issues was I was really, really young. I was 19 when we got engaged. In fact, I was just looking through a marriage certificate. I had signed it at 19. 19 is old by some standards, but it was really, really young. And I remember... Only one person tried to talk me out of it, and it was my boss at the time. She was a feminist woman, and she was upset. She was the only person that was upset that I was engaged at that time, and she couldn't have stopped me. In fact, I cut myself off from her because once I made this decision, and I use the word decision in air quotes because really everything in my life had sort of groomed me for this, right? I'd gone to all the young women lessons, all of the things that told me that this was the goal. This was the goal. So looking back on it, there was a part of me that knew she was right and I couldn't be around it. So this idea of like trying to stop people or talk people out of something that their whole life is, this is the pinnacle of their life, is pointless. It did nothing but sort of drive me underground. I mean, I look back on it now and it, I realize she was probably right, but it wasn't an effective strategy. And that's why I really support the work that you do. And I've seen you, Shirley, personally help so many people, countless people. So this idea that, you know, you don't listen to victims or that you love polygamy or whatever is just, it's unfounded. I mean, it's, it's thrown at you by people who don't, who don't know these communities. (laughs) That's, that's all I can say. Okay. So let me, I really quick want to um, just echo what Shirley said that that, you know, for generations, feminist scholars critiqued marriage. They critiqued marriage as an aspect of the traffic of women. They critiqued marriage as a type of prostitution, monogamous marriage. And we can't imagine going up 
you know, to Capitol Hill and lobbying against monogamous marriage as a legalized form of prostitution. It would be unheard of to do that. But for generations, we've heard of people talk about how monogamous marriage is an oppressive system for women. And so when we talk about in general marriage, we need to recognize that the entire system has been up for debate forever. It's not, it's, it's not polygamy that is the marriage system, that is the marriage structure that is controversial. Marriage in general is controversial. And I, I'm, I'm so with you on that one. I'm like, you know, if, if we were to go and say, let's get rid of all the patriarchal structures and all the inherently unequal structures, I am right there. I am with you. Let's do that. But, you know, for the purposes of, of my work right here, right now, for reality, my, my contest is that we don't get to be hypocritical and narrowly focus on this one thing that is inherently unequal for women. So, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've said this before, but one of the, the things that has opened my mind the very most, and I would say has opened a lot of, you know, I bring a lot of volunteers into Short Creek to do service projects, one in May, one in we're going to help cherish families. The thing that has changed my mind the most is to realize that we're not that different. In fact, a lot of the harms, I would say the majority of the harms, with the exception of a few things that Warren Jeffs did, but not even that. I mean, we have ritual abuse in the LDS church. We have sexual abuse. We have domestic violence. I, I was telling someone the other day, in my ward in Stansbury alone, there were families who, women who were living silent horrors. And, you know, one woman went to her bishop and kept trying to say that her husband was abusing her. And since he was the ward secretary, nobody believed her until the man held her up at gunpoint. So all of these horror stories that I hear in polygamy, I hear in the LDS church too. And to me, I think it's like you said, they're the result of patriarchal hierarchy and dogma and oppression and imbalance towards women. And I'm sorry, but Mormon monogamy is very similar to Mormon polygamy in the sense that the covenants are the same, the, the language is the same, the function of women are the same. And I'm not going to say that my experience is analogous to that of a plural wife, but I do think that people should get their own house in order before they go pointing fingers at all these communities. And that has been one of the biggest wake-up calls to me. Well, and it's not just Mormonism either. I mean, I see this in all major religions. I see it in Judaism and Catholicism and hey. Christianity and I mean, all of us. Sorry, Christina. Present company accepted as always. Christina's the one always saying that uh, sexual abuse is their brand and Catholicism. I mean, so. right now it. It is. It's the biggest bummer. But I mean, if we want to talk about abuse in a, in a religious system, like my people have you covered and it sucks and we don't know how to get rid of it. And the perpetrators have been groomed for generations to perpetuate abuse. So if we want to talk about, you know, violent religious systems, like I get it. Well, and to me, that really just kind of points to it's not the structure, it's the people right? Um, sexual abuse is perpetrated by human beings, not by principles. And so we really have to confront that when we talk about polygamy as well. Well, I can, I can already hear listeners saying what they're coming up marriage now. And I just want to say, if your sacred cow has been um, disrupted at all tonight, I want you to understand for a minute what it's like for a lot of these fundamentalists to confront some of these issues. This is one of my biggest frustrations with people who want to go in and rescue these communities. They want people to abandon their whole 
worldview, their whole religious framework, uh, the whole scaffolding of everything in their life for some new scaffolding. And I say to the rescuers, are you willing to do the same? Have you challenged your beliefs? Have you challenged the harmful ways that you contribute to society? And too often I find that rescuing people is a distraction from the work that we need to be doing in our own communities. And that's why I don't rescue people. I'm fundamentally opposed to it. So let's let's get into sort of the issue of decriminalization in the bill because, uh, and Christina, I'm going to have you sort of explain it to us out the gate. One of the things I've realized, and I think we need to state like 400 times over is Polygamy is not legal in Utah. Polygamy is still illegal in Utah. None of us were fighting to legalize polygamy. And I know we all have different opinions on where we land on that, but that is what we're talking about today. So when we're talking about this new bill, this new bill does not legalize polygamy. Talk about first what the difference is between legalized and decriminalized too, if you would, Christina. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, but I mean, first, I would even also say that for the purpose of this bill, polygamy is also still criminalized in Utah. It's effectively decriminalized in that it was reduced to an infraction, and infractions are speeding tickets, you know, things like that. So it's effectively decriminalized in that those are crimes that are infractions are seldom prosecuted. Um, they don't have large repercussions, but um, it's it's still criminal in Utah. So... Um, I, I want to note that. So historically, for 85 years, polygamy was a felony in Utah. So it was punishable by upwards of 15 years in prison. With You could get fined for it. Um, but there is a precedent. A lot of people kind of point to that no one's ever gone to jail for polygamy. But the reality is that many people, both men and women, have gone to jail for polygamy. Children have been taken from homes. Um, it was illegal prison time. So making something decriminalized, it is still illegal in the sense, um, but it is a postmark that it is not prosecuted and that it is not going to um, destroy one's um, ability to get a job. It's not going to just put one in prison. It's not going to cause someone to lose their children. So what the bill did is effectively decriminalize polygamy. And what I mean by that, to be very as specific as possible, because I think a lot of people here there's a bill in Utah to decriminalize polygamy and the reading stops there. And we don't read the rest of it. We don't read the article and we, we certainly don't read the language of SB 102. Um, the bill lowered polygamy to an infraction for otherwise law abiding adult. So what that means, if you are a law abiding citizen, you're an adult and you happen to decide to practice polygamy, it will be an infraction. However, if you are practicing polygamy and there are also other crimes such as coercion, fraud, abuse of multiple varieties, trafficking, rape, sexual battery, things like that, polygamy will remain a felony. So that's the, that half of the bill hasn't been as readily discussed. And I think that's the half of the bill that is worth more conversation is that yes, polygamy is going to be an infraction in Utah, but it will not be an infraction when associated with other crimes. Okay, so that's kind of the bill before us. Shirley, before we get into why we support and all of that, do you want to, is there anything more you want to explore about the difference between decriminalization and criminalization? Yeah, I think there, there's a huge misconception and I, I've had a lot of people call me and say, Oh, does that mean we can get two marriage licenses now? Um, <laughs> does it mean that, you know, all of these various things? The answer is no. It's, if it were legal, that would mean 
that people could legally get more than one marriage license. That is not legal still. So decriminalize just basically means what they did is they took the penalty for cohabiting and purporting to marry, which, you know, cohabitation is guaranteed under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution and and purporting is free speech, the First Amendment. And so those two things is really how Utah defined polygamy and because people weren't getting marriage licenses anyway. And so um, that's what has been taken down to the, the cohabiting and purporting to marry. And one of the reasons why the distinction is particularly important for Utah, as well as a several other states, is that polygamy is illegal according to our constitution. It's not just some later law. Our constitution specifically says, but polygamy and plural marriages are forever prohibited. So it would take way more than a bill to legalize polygamy in the state of Utah. It would take an actual constitutional amendment. And that is not what that's not what happened. And do you guys want to speak to the history at all? I know we've covered the history on this podcast. Barbara Jones Brown talks about the legality of it. You know, I was pretty flippant on Twitter the other night and I was like, it's never been legal. Polygamy's never been legal. And Barbara's like, well, actually it was for like a short period of time. And I guess if you count the territorial Utah legislature voting for their own interests, it was legal for a time. But do you want to go over a quick and dirty history? <laughs> Just really quickly, as far as my progenitors and my history, polygamy was since statehood forever prohibited. Um, that was in 1890. The manifesto was issued in, May, in 1890 where the church gave it up, but it wasn't until 1935 that there was, there were felony laws against polygamy. And, and that's when my ancestors were driven from, from mainstream society to the rural, um, enclave of what was then Short Creek on the Utah Arizona border. And so and for 85 years, it was a felony with a brief glorious moment. Um, I think it was in 2015 when Judge Waddups uh, struck down the constitutionality of the language. And then in 2017, it was, it was turned into a felony again with House Bill 99. So that's the quick and dirty <laughs> history from my perspective. Shirley, were you involved in previous efforts to decriminalize? Yes. Yeah, so I've actually been campaigning for polygamy to be decriminalized since 2013. After Judge Waddup's ruling came out, I was just elated. And, and then in 2016, when the original bill that became House Bill 99 in 2017, I don't remember the number, in 2016, it was defeated. Mike Noel tried to, to, to recriminalize it and was successful in 2017 with House Bill 99. Um, and I campaigned against it both of those years. Just so everyone knows, I have offered this podcast as a platform for the opposition to come on those who oppose the bill. I worked probably all last week and the week before trying to get people on the opposition. We're still working on that. We've had a hard time and I want to make sure that I'm doing that ethically. But so far, the people who I have asked to, you know, represent some of these organizations are getting back to me. So I, I hope to let them respond to this if they want. I would like to be fair. But can we sort of give maybe a synopsis of some of the opposition what what why they're opposing this because i i do think that there are feminists on both sides of this and there's a lot of misinformation but what are what's the thrust of the argument from the opposition to decriminalization so i think i should probably clarify um, one other thing here and that is 
I am not denying that there are, there are some, some abuses that happen in, in some polygamous structures and some polygamous families. I know, you know, there are some, some bad things that happen. There are some families that have horrible things happen. Um, there's some abuse that happens in, you know, in some structures and some, in some areas, it's maybe even majority. I don't, I don't know that to be the case, but, um, I'm not here denying that abuse happens in polygamy, but I think the number one thing that I heard from the opposition was that polygamy is inherently evil, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of a root cause kind of argument that it's really difficult to have a conversation with somebody who believes that. Um, the second thing is that all polygamy is abusive, that there's no polygamy in which abuse does not occur. Um, a third argument is that there's no such thing as consenting adults in polygamy because people are brainwashed their entire lives and must enter polygamy. And so there is no way that they can actually truly consent. I think one of the big ones we heard, and again, I want to echo Shirley that there is horrific abuse in polygamous communities. It absolutely happens. As with all cases, victims, we need to believe victims. We need to believe women first. And so I'm in no way discounting that. I think one of the big differences is that we heard a lot from the opposition stories of child labor, rape, trafficking, exploitation, coercion, and those are absolutely crimes. Those are felonies in every state. I, I think the main difference between what a lot of the opposition said and where you know, not to say we, but where we're all coming from is that we acknowledge those are crimes, but they're not synonymous with polygamy. Rape is rape. It's a crime. It's one of the most under-prosecuted crimes in the United States, but rape is not polygamy. Here's the thing. I'm sympathetic to these arguments because, and I'm sorry to my polygamous friends, but I do think Mormon polygamy, the way that it's practiced, is unfair and unequal to women. And I know I, you know, I have friends that'll disagree with me. Christchurch, for example, they have this uh, religious theoretical framework that talks about women's status, and they, and a lot of the women would disagree with my statement there. I still love and respect them, but. I don't like it. Uh, I don't like the idea of it. But I also acknowledge that the LDS women, we have a wound with it because it's, you know, bad and terrible and we moved away from it, but it's going to be in our heaven. And so LDS, the LDS community, we've spent a century trying to distance ourselves from something that's still in our heaven and it comes out in really funky ways. So I think that that's part of my bias coming out. But I do think, you know, these victims, I've talked to a lot of victims they're not getting justice. They're leaving these groups. And some of these groups are cults. I mean, by definition. So they're leaving these groups. They go to law enforcement and they're not getting any justice. And I, so I'm really sympathetic to that. So what would you say to that argument to those people who come and try to talk to the authorities and nothing is happening for their perpetrators? Well, I think that one of the problems up to this point has been the fact that polygamy is a felony. And, and so from the perspective of the prosecutors, I know speaking with our local county prosecutor for years that the fact that, that polygamy was a felony really muddied the water and made it so that it was really hard to press charges because, because when people come and say, I want you to press charges and they're also a polygamist, and there's all this pressure for for pressing charges against the polygamy aspect and the county attorneys knowing that it's not going to withstand scrutiny that a criminal charge for polygamy even if it, if they're found guilty would probably be overturned because it's not constitutional that 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 really muddied the waters and made it so that first of all 
it was difficult to press charges. And second of all, people weren't, weren't willing to report and people weren't willing to be witnesses against these crimes because the polygamy aspect always muddied the water. And so for me, having that, that really, that cloud and that haze removed from the crimes is, is should for sure make it easier to prosecute the crimes. But the second thing is, there aren't many people that get justice for these kinds of crimes anyway. You know, I, I worked with the Dove Center. It's a domestic violence shelter. I work with the rape and sexual assault coalitions. I work with tons and tons of people who try to get justice for victims throughout mainstream. And there is a very tiny, tiny percentage of victims in mainstream that get justice for these kinds of crimes. So it's it's not really fair to say that polygamy makes it so people don't get justice. Justice system makes it so people don't get justice. What would you say to people that removing this backstop, if you will, this this hard line makes it one step easier for people to not get justice? I mean, it removes one more avenue of justice. Because I do know, one thing I do want to talk about is the, the last polygamy or bigamy charge that we know of on the books, correct me if I'm wrong, was in 2001 with Tom Green he, on four counts of bigamy. That was, wasn't was his only charge. He I believe his first, his first charge was child abuse. I'll have to look that up. But uh, the second one was definitely bigamy. So what about people who say, right, but now you've just removed one other way for me to get justice? Well, I mean, nobody was getting justice for this anyway. Nobody was pressing charges. And again, the statewide association of prosecutors came out in support of this bill because, and they said on record, we will not press charges for this. So I don't know how that was even something that could be considered, uh, you know, a backstop for justice. Nobody was going to get justice for that anyway. Christina, the question was, what, what about people who say that you're removing another avenue for them to get justice? Sure, victims don't get justice, but polygamy being criminalized at least allowed them an avenue to pursue. Right. So I would say that the second half of the bill that um, Senator Henderson and Representative Snow formulated, it was intended to address that very particular concern. So everyone kind of looks at this decriminalization bill that polygamy is an infraction and they stop right there and they raise those questions about how am I going to get justice? But the line immediately after that specifically brings up fraud and coercion, that if polygamy is done under fraudulent or coercive pretenses, then it remains a felony and you can still get justice for that. You can absolutely still bring it to the courts for that. So I think that question in itself kind of demonstrates a lack of awareness of what is specifically being done, that it is a decriminalization effort, but it's not a decriminalization bill. So one of one of the things that I have talked about online, especially in Facebook, is I will hear people in the opposition say, the state isn't doing anything. Of course, this happened in Utah. They just want to make it legal because they all believe it and the LDS Church wants to bring it back. And first of all, I don't think that's true. I don't think the LDS Church wants anything to do with it. In fact, I think uh, it's evidence to the contrary. The Deseret News and KSL, the church's publishing arms, posted all the anti-polygamy arguments. They're the ones that hosted all the anti-polygamy arguments in their op-eds and in their articles. But also, I think that there's something to be said about this idea that Utah isn't doing anything about it. And I used to be really frustrated with that, too. Like, surely, I have been a victim's advocate, especially in my own community, it's been really difficult working with victims of abuse in, in my own community to get justice. This is the argument I would say, yeah, they're not pursuing polygamy. No one is prosecuting it. So why are we, why do we still allow this bill to be on our books as criminalization and give victims false hope? 
because like you said, no one is reporting polygamy. No one is coming forward on polygamy. No one is prosecuting polygamy. And maybe we can talk about some of the reasons why that is happening. Well, so, also, it's, it's worth, when you mention Utah, um, I've heard a lot of people mention both the state of Utah and the LDS church. And again, worth noting that even with this bill passing, Utah still has the harshest polygamy laws in the nation, even now with the bill. So prior to the bill, the single harshest, but even now it's still, that remains the case. Most states in the West have effectively decriminalized polygamy already. It is illegal everywhere, but it is effectively decriminalized in most places. Utah is actually one of the last for this. So the claims that of course Utah, of course the LDS church, I think that kind of is a reflection of a misunderstanding of what the rest of the nation is doing. When we have maps of decriminalization, we don't even put the East Coast on those maps because they completely just don't care about what people are doing in terms of polygamy. Um, but even after this bill is signed, Utah will still have the harshest laws on the books. Yeah. And I think that's important to note because, you know, that is, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions here is that, you know, I've been hearing this even from the opposition, which I feel like people that are lobbying against this bill should at least know this. They're saying Utah will become a safe haven for polygamists. And I'm like, what? Like, it is literally easier to be a polygamist almost anywhere else than in Utah. And yet, Utah has the most polygamists. Now, I'm not saying that criminalization causes polygamists, but it certainly doesn't deter it. And if anything, as the work that Christina and I have done with these really obscure groups, uh, we know that it's driven people underground to some really, really dark and twisted things. And it's not because of polygamy. It's because of isolation. It's because of, you know, allowing people to be cut off from power, from their own power, from their own access to resources and things like that. And surely you know about this firsthand. Yeah, I was going to say, I, so the, the FLDS group was the largest polygamous group, you know, of all polygamy. We had between 10 and 13,000 members, which is more than double any of the other groups. And I feel like that the reason it grew so quickly is because after the 19, you know, at, well, 1935, my progenitors were driven to Short Creek, which is geographically isolated and also ideologically and socially and every other way isolated. And so as, as children were born into this, um, we didn't have any other opportunities. We didn't have mainstream to deal with. We didn't have mentors and examples from, from other kinds of ways of being. And so we continue, we perpetuated the community and grew extremely rapidly. And so we got to be a big, big group. Now, what I'm seeing in, in other states where it hasn't been criminalized, is like there is a community of, of fundamentalists in Missouri, for example. And the numbers for that community are dwindling because their kids go to school with kids from mainstream. They're able to socialize with other with other communities. And so their kids aren't opting in. They know they have other choices. They're marrying outside the group. And so from my pers- from my perspective, I believe that it was the criminalization of polygamy that actually created the huge numbers in Utah. And uh, polygamy, I think, would have died of its own weight if they had just been left alone. So, yeah, I, And I, I want to also note that there's been a lot of conversation about the polygamists are going to come to Utah. Polygamists are in Utah. They're here. This is their land. <laughs> they founded it. And generationally, they're still here. But one of the kind of more 
um, I don't want to say horrendous, but it has been arguments is that if polygamy is decriminalized, then Muslims and West Africans will come to Utah. And that is said in a negative and a derogatory. And so um, I think that it's an important moment to check our racism on thoughts about polygamy, because to say polygamists will come to Utah when people say that they're not talking about white Mormons and they're invoking people's Islamophobia and racism. And so I, I want to point out very emphatically that that's not okay. Yeah, I was really disappointed by that too. And I would just say anyone out there, I don't care where you fall on the opinion of this, but if you hear that argument, shut that down. Uh, you know, we, we talked to some advocates working with Muslim groups, uh, polygamous groups, like, Minnesota, right? And, you know, asked about this, like, if we decriminalize it, are, are we going to see polygamists move here? And everyone said, why would we do that? <laughs> why would we uproot? You know, why would they do that? Why would they uproot their communities to come to Utah in a place that is obviously very hostile towards brown people already? So if we see that argument, I mean, I'm just I, I won't even entertain that argument. I think that's a scare tactic. And, and it, I was really disappointed to see it used as widely as it was. Well, and the other thing, too, is that there is such a huge widespread hostility toward Mormon polygamists here, you know, and, and we have white skin. And so the racists are more comfortable with us. But it's but it's still to this point where and I had this conversation with with an attorney and he said, all of the polygamists from all over the United States are going to come here. And I said, why would they when they're enjoying a comfortable life where they are and would come here just to enjoy the kind of stigma and harassment and, and hatred that I experienced when I tried to move 40 miles from my home. Why would somebody move across the United States to come and enjoy that here? It doesn't make sense. Well, I want to, I want to talk about the efficacy of decriminalization in other arenas that this is a debate amongst feminists. Like I know that it's been discussed in sex work and pros prostitution and things like that and trafficking. And I want to get into that, but First, maybe it's because I just feel a little hammered and beleaguered this week after all of these, like, people were awful. People were dirty to all of us saying, I, I didn't ever have anyone attack the arguments uh, about the bill. They would attack our character. So, yeah, I want to talk about the efficacy of decriminalization. But, yeah, we've we've been kind of beat up with character attacks. And I just think that that shows the weakness of the argument on the opposition to this. One of the things I really took personally and it affected me was that I don't listen to victims. Shirley, this is going to make you uncomfortable because Shirley and I had this conversation. I was I said, Shirley, you are talking to victims day in and day out of this stuff. Why aren't you telling more of their stories? Because the opposition, that's all they're doing is they're bringing out people who have suffered really terrible things. And I don't want to be dismissive of that at all. And and I will say I have come at advocates publicly in this for their position and what I see as exploitation of, of people's stories, but never victims themselves. I will not dismiss victims' stories. I will talk about how they are being used by people who have nothing to do with these communities and, and use these stories to beat people up. But I said this to Shirley. And Shirley, why don't you tell people what you told me? So, well, first of all, <laughs> Cherish Families has crime victim funding from the Victims of Crime Act. And under that grant, we are under federal confidentiality guidelines, which means it's a felony for us to, to expose 
any of our victims' identities or stories or anything. We can't even tell anybody who we're working with or that we're working with someone. And so it's a felony. We could lose our funding and we could go to jail for it. That's one part of it. The other part of it is because we have seen how people have been used and exploited and how their stories have been used, we have a sacred covenant with our clients that we will never use them. We will never use their stories. We will never ask them to go public with anything that we serve them with. And we did that before we had federal funding because we saw how, how detrimental this was. You know, when I left, I didn't even ask anybody for help because I wasn't about to be used. And so because of that, we will not ask anybody that we're helping to, to come forward and talk. Most of our clients don't think they're victims of polygamy. And so if I were to say to somebody, we need a victim of polygamy to stand forward and tell their story, they'd all look around at each other and go, who me? Because most of our clients get that they came from a culture and that culture had positive and negative pieces to it. But you take it all together and, you know, and you look at what happened and you look at what your, what the victimization was or what the problem was and you deal with that. And you don't say it was the culture that caused this. Shirley, I want to thank you personally because you have mentored me on this. People will say, oh, Lindsay, you're a hypocrite. You're saying advocates can't use their story, but you tell people's stories all the time on the podcast. You're profiting off of people's stories. And all I can say is there was a period of time in the podcast a couple of years ago when people started coming to me, approaching me and asking to tell their story or talking to me. And I would say, well, do you want to tell your story about that? And I thought I was doing due diligence by giving them some media training, t- talking to them about what would happen if they put their story out there. But I learned because of, I've talked about this before in the podcast, but our friend, our friend that we all knew and loved, Roy Jeffs, he was the one that showed me how hurtful that was. I saw his experiences telling his stories for other organizations, and I saw the effect it had on him. Through the mentoring of Shirley and Roy and other people, I realized I don't want to do that anymore. So I only put people out who are really polished, who have a lot of media training, who who want to tell specific stories. But I actually have come to see anecdotally, I don't know how much research there is on this, but the people that don't tell their stories, that leave these communities and get resources and don't tell their stories far way better than those who do. We were all well-intentioned. The idea was if you tell your story, it'll bring awareness and it'll help people. But there wasn't enough scaffolding and resources in place to help the people telling their stories uh, for the impact that that would have on them. They're stuck with this this thing on the internet forever that, that never, ever goes away. And that impacts them in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. And surely you refuse to do that with with this bill. And I was mm-hmm. skeptical that you could win against, you know, emotional arguments and personal stories like that, but but you were able to do that. Do you think you could tell us some examples, though, of how decriminalization has hurt people uh, specifically? Because we all know those stories, and I think that we can share those stories in a way to show people some actual realities of why criminalization was hurting people, sometimes costing people their lives. Well, I mean, I can tell stories, and when I do, I do cultural competence training for organizations and agencies that work with with this population. I tell stories in that, and some of the stories are by people who are no longer with us, and and other stories, you know, have happened to me, or I've been I've been given permission to share without any uh, any personal information. But um, I will, so I'll just I'll just tell you know a couple of my stories, for example the hatred that I encountered when I tried to, to leave the community, when I tried to, to come to St. George and find a place to rent. I mean, people wouldn't rent to me just because I was visually identifiable as a deviant. You know, I would find my 
cart full of condoms in Walmart and people would make, make these assumptions that the government was paying for everything in my basket because of the kinds of stories that get perpetrated about the population. Wait, back perpetuated. up. Condoms? <laughs> a basket full of condoms? Whoa. Yeah. What was yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So I'd be shopping in Walmart and I'd turn around and find my basket full of car- my cart full of condoms. Yeah. Because, Why? You know, because everybody knows that the plagues have too many kids. Right. And so this is a way that there's, they're, they're making a statement. Gross. You need to not have so many kids. I'm sorry that happened to you. Right. Not knowing anything about me. Right. Um, and so, and I tell the story about, I get really emotional about these kinds of stories because they have lifelong consequences. And there are a million stories like this, but this is one that really kind of highlights how how harsh and unfair the world has been and, and really justified with the criminalization of the culture. Um, so my mom was kicked out of Colorado city about a year after I moved away and she moved to St. George and moved in with me. And she'd been living there for a couple of years and decided that she was going to go ahead and make St. George her home. And she'd been doing everything Warren Jeffs didn't want her to do. She was listening to Gentile music and talking to her apostate children and getting on the internet and all these horrible things. And, and so she went to the driver's license division to change her driver's license from Utah to, from Arizona to Utah. And the clerk sent her away and said, you need to prove you live here. Just frankly, obviously you don't live here because you're, you look weird. And so my mom went and got what she was told to bring and took it back. And the clerk sent her away again sent her away eight times and with just another thing, another requirement, another requirement to prove that she lived in Utah, in St. George. And finally, my mom went back and she said, I have, she had this pile of, of documentation. And she says, okay, here's everything you need, you've asked for. And look, if you're going to send me away again, give me the whole list right now so that I don't have to keep coming back. And the clerk just looked her in the face and said, frankly, we just don't want you here. And sent her away without a driver's license. And so my mom, she, she real St. George, she moved back to Colorado City where, um, under the direction of Warren Jeff, she was not able to get proper health care and died of a preventable death. And so I, you know, things like that, that, you know, this driver's license clerk felt completely justified and because the law of Utah was that my mom was a felon just by looking at her. The clerk didn't know anything about my mom. She was not in a polygamous marriage, but the clerk knew who she was by looking at her and was justified in discriminating against her and denying her privilege that everybody else in the state gets to have. And so, you know, when we, when we codify this kind of treatment for an entire population, these are the kinds of, of consequences. People, you know, remain under the control of, of a really vicious person like Warren Jeffs because they're not safe in the rest of Utah. So, so when we talk about the unintended consequences, you know, from, from way back, from my dad being taken away from his parents when he was a kid in the 1953 raid and my, and my being raised fearful that that was going to happen to me. There are a million stories like this. You know, I, I was surprised to see sort of this dividing line and even people who I thought wanted the same things as I did, which was to root out all of these injustices that we're talking about. It became clear after a while that some people just really need to hold on to their hatred of polygamists. And that speaks deeply to this wound. It speaks deeply to their own pain. And again, I would say, well, what are they? Are they 
perpetrators or victims. And I learned quite quickly and harshly that that we only want to help some victims who leave, right? If they leave and they look like a victim that we want them to look like, then then they're cleared and they're worthy of our help. I find that deeply problematic. I find that deeply hypocritical. And I and I think it's dangerous. Christina, maybe you can talk about this too. We have seen firsthand as outsiders the discrimination that fundamentalists have experience. And I'm not even talking about people that are in and that are believers, although there's plenty of that. But we saw that, we've seen that with our friends who have left. I mean, there is a stigma that follows people around that affects their healing and their ability to integrate into the world because people have such a hatred, truly, of polygamy and therefore polygamous. And I think, do we really want to help these people or do we just want to be angry and hateful? Yeah. And I think one of the things that ends up in terms of effect being just as bad is this benevolent exotification of people who leave and they become people to put on display and they become people to parade around as like, look at this person that at one time in their life wore a prairie dress. And that is, it's still the same stigma, but it's done in this very strange way that still absolutely hurts people. It absolutely still impedes people from getting resources. And it keeps people a lot of times in a cycle of trauma that is very dangerous. So yes, stigmatization is absolutely a problem and people are are barred from resources. But in an attempt to no longer stigmatize people, it's important to beware, be aware of not exoticizing people and turning them into some kind of show. I mean, we've been, we've been accused of doing that talking about our friend Roy. And I just want to say that anyone that wants to lobby that accusation at me or Christina or Shirley, until you have had, uh, someone like that be your friend, stay in your home, spend every single day with you. Um, I don't, I, I'm not going to entertain that. I don't care what you say. Roy's experience absolutely impacts this. It impacted my uh, involvement in this legislation. So I will say that we saw this with Roy. We saw this firsthand with Roy and he would tell me, people only like me when I'm a victim. People only like me when I'm telling bad stories about my parents, bad stories about my father. And I had to sit there and have Roy not just once, but many, many times crying on my couch shivering on my couch because all people wanted from him was to perform the poor FLDS boy. He was a Jeff's. He couldn't get away from that name. And we didn't allow him any any redeeming qualities about his childhood. And Roy had a lot of good memories about his childhood. And I dare say even about his dad. And I know that's complicated. And Roy knew that that was complicated as well. But no one even allowed him any room to explore that. I, I would say very few people. I believe that we did. I believe that the people on this podcast did that for him. But that has absolutely foundationally changed the way that I've approached this. Because it's not just with Roy. We've seen this with a lot of people. But certainly with Roy. So, um, and I want to talk about that a little bit too, because that's one of the reasons why I find it so harmful when people want the victims of polygamy, and I say that in quotes, to, to go on television and tell their story and, and for people to point out how horrifying the culture is and all of this stuff, because those of us who came from polygamy, this is in our DNA. 
And if that is so inherently broken, the message is that we are inherently broken, that we are irredeemable, that we don't have anything good going for us. And in order for us to be worthy human beings and whole human beings, we have to remake ourselves over in someone else's image in order to be worthy of them, in order to be worthy of services or whatever. And so that is so, so harmful. Um, And I think that I'm hoping that going forward, we could start having conversations that are strengths-based, that are this person is a whole person and they might have experienced something that was harmful to them, who they are and their culture and where they came from and their DNA and their parents and everything about them is bad because there's no coming back from that. There's no becoming a whole and healthy, psychologically healthy person from that. Well, and I credit Roy and I credit you and I credit so many of the other amazing people that I've met for helping shape what I'm the work I'm doing at Sunstone. This idea of more than one way to Mormon comes from, I, I saw a lot of ex-Mormons organizing only around the pain, only around the, uh, the heartache, which is absolutely valid. Uh, my work shows that I'm not dismissive of that. I've spent a long time accounting and attending and seeking justice for those things. But if we cannot allow ourselves to laugh at, enjoy some of the quirky parts of it and accept the whole holistic part of it, then we're never going to be whole. And people will say, oh, that means you just want us to look for the good and ignore the bad. And I'm like, no, you have to do both. You have to hold both and contend with them together. But I I want to talk about people that feel like sharing their stories is important. Some people find healing in sharing their stories. And so I don't I don't want to dismiss that, but I think the resentment that I have about the way that the politics on this played out, it was way dirtier than I ever thought. But I was really disappointed that people would come to me and say, Lindsay, you said you cared about victims. You're traumatizing victims because you're trying to legalize polygamy. That's what I heard over and over. And I thought, wow, like, is that, that's the discussion that people at, these were coming from some advocates too. And I thought, Shame on the advocates for not educating victims who are triggered because it's absolutely true that this that this bill triggered a lot of victims of polygamy because many of them thought and still believe that we were trying to uh, legalize polygamy, protect their abusers. And, and I just thought that was so deeply irresponsible of people that claim to be advocates for a lot of these victims who don't have the same resources and access to information that a lot of us do and haven't been integrated in society in the ways that we have to allow them to be so scared and to be so deeply triggered by their own trauma to believe something about this bill that just didn't exist. That was really upsetting to me. I saw a lot of fear mongering also from those same advocates where they were telling people that they were going to lose all of their resources if this, if this bill passed. And I, It just made me so angry because people who are already so, you know, unsure of where they are and where they stand in this world to be threatened, you know, they'll have this held over their head that they were going to lose their resources. And particularly by somebody who should have known better and who should have, who should have known that uh, a person who's that vulnerable doesn't need to hear that they're not going to have resources. And so I just, I felt like that there was some unconscionable ways that some of these victims were used. And also, if we're going to have a conversation about resources, let's have that conversation. And let's talk about the bill the opponents put forth last year, HB 214, and what it actually did. Because we found out 
through the hearing and through hearing from the director of the Office of Victims of Crimes that HB 214, so for people who don't know, HB 214 listed bigamy as one of the quote violent crimes that people could get reparations for through the Office of Victims of Crimes. And this bill was heavily lobbied by people who oppose polygamy. I mean, I don't like polygamy, but people who like lobby (laughs) against polygamy. This bill became a battle cry for the opposition that this was going to help victims. And one of the, what I found to be the most shocking things in the testimony for Senate Bill 102 was hearing that from the Office of Victims of Crimes that zero dollars, zero dollars went to victims because of HB 214. So if we're going to talk about resources, giving victims resources means giving it to them. It does not mean putting victims on display to lobby for bills that are going to supposedly give victims resources when in reality that bill did nothing. Well, and let me clarify. So victims did receive money from HB 214 for other crimes, right? No, it wasn't, it wasn't due to 214. So the, the victims, crime victims reparations are already available. And anybody that has suffered any of the crimes that, that a crime victims or a CVR will pay for then that is already available. So HB 214 did not open up any funding that was not already available. Okay, that just makes me mad. If you're a victim of rape, regardless of how many wives your perpetrator had, you can go to the Office of Victims of Crimes and seek reparations. Even if if you are someone who comes from a monogamous family, if someone who comes from a polygamous group, you can receive reparations today. And that's something for your listeners, Lindsay, I want them to hear that if today, right now, you are a victim of crime, you have the ability to seek resources and reparations through the Office of Victims of Crime right now. And that, and the problem is that HB 214 made people believe that that wasn't true. And that's a disservice to victims of crimes right now. Well, I'm I'm upset about it because my I'm just learning about this right now because you know, I just went on Radio West. I arranged for someone from the opposition to be there, someone who I love and respect, Melissa Ellis. She said she got money from that bill. But what you're saying is she got money but from a bill that was already there. Not from a bill, from a from a government office. I'm and and let me be clear, if if she or and anyone from the Kingston community got money from the Office of Victims of Crimes, that is great and important and that needs to happen. I think the the bill or the the governmental move that needs to happen that would be effective is not 214. The bill that would be effective is giving increased funds to the Office of Victims of Crimes because the reality is there are a lot of victims in the state of Utah that need resources and the Office of Victims of Crimes is absolutely underfunded. And so more resources need more money needs to be given to that office. So if one of the victims of the Kingston community received reparations, that is incredible. And I would encourage women and men leaving violent situations to go to that office. But adding bigamy to the list of crimes they could get money for did not increase the amount of money in that office. And it certainly didn't give more money to victims. So you're saying that this bill was proposed, put forth as a way to say, if we slap polygamy as a violent crime, then finally victims will get some sort of reparations. We know that didn't happen. They were just getting repar- reparations from money that was already there. And and 
I don't, I don't know these particular situations. So I don't want to speak to the specific application of any victim because I don't know. But we did hear from the director that no money was allocated because bigamy was labeled a violent crime. The money was already, the Office of Victims of Crimes was already there. It was an established office. Victims were going there. HB 214 didn't give more money. Let's talk about this for a minute, because why is it so hard for bigamy in Utah or polygamy to be prosecuted? What are some of the challenges? Why? And I'll say this. I do think that there is a collective, what's the word I want? Apathy for this. Like nobody wants to touch it. There's a lot of fear in touching the topic. But I think it's a little bit more complex than that. Yeah. I I mean, one of the things that I mentioned to a few people on the opposition is if you're going to actually say we need to prosecute polygamy both when affiliated with other crimes and for otherwise law-abiding adults, your next bill has to be a bill to build more prisons because we straight up do not have prison space in Utah. We do not have the resources to house 30,000 plus felons simply for the practice of polygamy. We just do not have the ability to do that in our state. I mean, knowing, and surely you can speak to this on a more research basis, but anecdotally speaking, all the polygamists I know, they're not getting legal uh, licenses. They're doing spiritual marriages. A lot of them don't even cohabitate with their all of their wives. Women can be spread out all over the state. So as a law enforcement official, and I've talked to a lot of law enforcement officials, I spent two hours in Sim Gill's office with his two lead prosecutors. He gave me the time. I was there with uh, Kingston Victims. We were trying to understand why they didn't prosecute. It was very frustrating and upsetting. But at the end of the day, he said, how how do we even begin to do this? I mean, how do you how do you prove something? How do you prove a spiritual marriage? The law in the books has to do with legal marriage, government marriage. And polygamists have already uh, Mormon polygamists have already sort of sidestepped that one a long time ago. Right. I mean, and, and that's what I was talking about with the statewide association of prosecutors, how they came out and said they're not going to charge people. They're not, they're never going to prosecute this because again, the way Utah defines polygamy is cohabiting and purporting. So two things that can't be prosecuted in this day and age. Lawrence v. Texas, I can't remember what year that decision was, means that anybody can live with whoever they want. You don't get to press charges for that. And cohab and purporting to marry is is free speech. So that's the problem. Polygamists don't get more than one marriage license, so it's impossible to prosecute. What about this idea that consenting adults are the exception, not the rule? That they're a small group of of people. I would say, I mean, that one's tricky for me because with my own marriage and my own experience, and I understand that it's different in Mormon monogamy, but I don't feel like I had all the information and resources. I had no idea what I was getting into. But if you would have gone to 19-year-old me, I would have totally told you it was a choice. So So, it's really complicated. So I really want want to talk about this because I'm a feminist, okay? I'm just going to go on record and say that I am a feminist. (laughs) Anyone that knows you, I mean, Shirley Draper left and wrote a a letter to her polygamous husband talking about Mother God, Heavenly Mother, when she left, which I thought was pretty radical for an FLDS woman at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I have been pretty radical in, in all kinds of things, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell one of my experiences, and then I'm going to talk about some of the ways that this bill was talked about. So all of my growing up years, 
I and I was a feminist from the day I was born, and my mom taught me about feminism, and I fought with my teachers because they would say girls can't do this and all kinds of things. So I grew up kind of fighting. So growing up, I was told that the outside world was wicked and horrible and wrong because the women ruled over the men and that women had equal rights and and it was just a bad, bad place. So, you know, patriarchy is is the way of, is the order of God. And so when I know, can I, I just point out that both you and I grew up in a world where patriarchy was a positive thing? Like, that's so wild to me still. <laughs> okay, go. <laughs> and we're taught the same thing. Anyway, and so, and so when I was getting ready, this is going to be great because finally I am going to move to where women have equal rights with men and have equal voice and are equally respected. And I was so looking forward to this egalitarian world. And I moved to St. George and to <laughs> my utter horror, it was no different. Uh, it was, it was more insidious because it was covert. It was not overt like it was where I grew up. It was just understood and spoken about in coded language and in word. We, we say, oh yes, women have equal rights and women have equal opportunity. It's bullshit for lack of a better word. Sorry for the, for my language. But, but that's my experience for, from all of society. So when people want to point out the polygamy is horrible because of this, I'm just, you know, my, my whole word, your own backyard, hypocrite. Oh, this, this is the way, <laughs> this is the way the world is. Okay. So, so that's my, that's my first perspective. And let me just and, say something to that. When I die, I hope someone goes through all of my messages, my texts and all my emails. God help us all. And you will see thousands of stories, so many stories of abuse in the LDS community, horrific stories that will make your skin crawl. So many stories I can't even keep up with. So I just really resent this. I, I actually think it impedes progress in all of our communities to play oppression Olympics, honestly. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, so it's so hard for me to sit to sit there and listen to people, particularly people from a religious background that, you know, they have this thing that they're going to rescue the plagues from their bad religion and impose the right religion on them because that's going to save them. And then they call out this, you know, this, this inequality for women. And I'm like, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not okay with it. So, so when it comes to this bill, what's really, really interesting is one of the, one of the polygamy is an offense to women. That's the thing I kept hearing over and over and over. And, and I'm just sitting there going, you know, okay, first of all, that's a normative fallacy. And that means that the person with the most privilege gets to make a judgment and decision about something else. And they don't have to have any evidence to support their conclusions or their judgments. And everybody has to accept that basis. And then all of the conversation has to be on this basis. And, and I think really anti-feminist, first of all, because it's really subjective. It's purely subjective. And, and it doesn't give any woman the opportunity to say, you know what? I would prefer to live in this type of relationship. There are many relationship. And frankly, when I was in it, I was one of them. I really loved my sister wife and she was incredibly supportive to me. And I had a baby in the hospital and I had to live in the hospital for three years. And if I did not have my sister wife at home loving and taking care of my babies, then I would have been a, a nervous wreck. So didn't you say polygamy to survive the FLDS polygamy was the single best thing in your life at the time? Oh yes. I would, I would absolutely agree that 
that during my marriage, the part of my marriage that was polygamous was the single best thing about my marriage. Absolutely. Why? Because, I mean, I really loved her. She was incredibly supportive. I was not getting along with my husband for a number of reasons, one of which was my feminism. I he He couldn't control me as well as he wanted to, and so he was terrified. And so I had a great relationship with my sister wife, and it was it was the light at the end of a tunnel. You know, I, I didn't have, I didn't have much in common with my husband. And so, you know, I had, I had support and I watch other families, you know, there are, there are several families in, in Short Creek who the women were the ones that kept the family alive and kept the family going. And, and I know many, many women who have left the community who say that women are absolutely what kept polygamy going there. If it weren't for the women, polygamy wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to, to keep going. And so, um, so I look at those women and I think, would it be a feminist per- perspective for me to tell them, you don't get to make that choice for me to infantilize them and tell them that they didn't get to believe in that and they didn't get to order their families how they wanted to? I, I have another perspective of that. And this is layered and complex, but I mean, being in some of these communities is the closest thing I've come to a matriarchy, which sounds kind of controversial and, and counterintuitive. But the feminine energy that I encountered really was fascinating to me as an LDS woman. I know a lot of LDS women who have very complicated relationships with other women, especially their mothers. It's, it's kind of a trope and a joke. But I don't see that writ large. And I don't care what group it is. I mean, just having that that presence of women, of course, there are side effects and it's hard for the boys and things like that. But there is something to be said about women getting together. And like you said, um, most of the women ran. I mean, if you're a man and you're married seven women with opinions and strong opinions, who do you think has more of a say? <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's not as, and that was another stereotype that was sort of broken down for me that polygamy is really hard on the men. And so to hear men vilified in, in this bill was really difficult for me because I think men are just considered uh, perverts and lustful and abusers. And I think, no, they're victims of this same patriarchal system too. And this, this is the wrong approach to getting justice for all of these people. I absolutely agree with that. You know, I, uh, and I've talked about this for years that, you know, people look at me and say, oh, you were a victim because you're a woman. And they look at my brother who was raised in the same system and he's, you know, a, a year older than me or a year younger than me or, you know, whatever the relationship is. And just because they have a Y chromosome, they're a perpetrator, even though they were raised in the same structure. And I absolutely deny that that's the case. I don't think that women are victims by definition, and I don't think that men are perpetrators by definition. I have found in my work at just at least in Short Creek, well, that's not true in a lot of communities, that as far as healing when victims and survivors come out, the women are often way more resilient than the men. I mean, there are some communities of men that are just lost kind of forever, and it's really heartbreaking. And I think that this narrative that we perpetuate about polygamy and these awful, gross men really damages a lot of really good people who the only difference between them and anyone else is who their grandparents were and the systems that they were brought up in. And so I guess what we're saying is we all love polygamy now. 
<laughs> Someone's going to take a clip of this and say, Lindsay says polygamy is a matriarchy. Blah, blah, blah. Um, can well, we talk- I, let me just say, I still don't love polygamy, <laughs> no matter how much I defend it. Nope. And, and, and that's the complexity of it. I, I say, people say, well, it's so different in the state. And I say, yeah, because we're still thinking like Mormons, all of us, black and white, good and evil. Uh, we're going to, you know, take down the evil, the, the satanic operations of polygamy. And, and it's too messy. It's too storied. It's too complicated. It's too layered that if we approach a, a solution so black and white, so binary, so simplistic, it's going to do a lot of damage. And I think all three of us are looking for ways to to root out all of this harm and get justice for victims. Because let's be clear, there is a lot of suffering in Mormon fundamentalist communities. There's a lot of suffering in Mormonism. And, and like you said, in larger religious contexts, I don't want to dismiss that and undermine that. But I just think that if we go in with such simplistic uh, views, the collateral damage is so unnecessary. We've seen it in our own lives. I just can't, I can't be part of that anymore. We've tried the same thing for 85 years. We have beat the dead horse of maybe not, maybe this time polygamy will go away. The reality is polygamy is not going to go away. As long as Mormonism is on this earth, polygamy is going to be on this earth. Criminalization, decriminalization efforts have worked in other spheres. We have not tried it with polygamy in the US. I know that people have been throwing around examples of other states, of other nations. Um, but we do have concrete examples of decriminalization working in other spheres. And I, I want to be careful. I don't want to equate polygamy with other crimes. And I put crimes in quotes um, because we did a decriminalization effort. But if you're going to tell me that we need to keep polygamy illegal, I'm going to look at you and ask you if you support the war on drugs. Because we saw what that did to people. People are dead. So we need to kind of rethink our approach to a lot of things um, because we've tried a lot of things the same way for so long and it's a new time and we need to kind of rethink our approach. Right. And I think people need to examine why they're so invested in the narrative, you know, that this is inherently evil. What is it that someone is getting out of this? What is it? How are they capitalizing on making sure that an entire percentage of the population are considered to be deviants and and need to live underground. How is that serving our our overarching narrative? And I just I think that the that the binaries, and we can talk about this really in any any social narrative, but any binary creates inherent problems. We have to to understand the human able to hold two completely competing ideas in our minds at the same time and allow people to be both of those things and to say not either or, but yes. And, and, and the true, the same is true of, of, you know, polygamists. We are very, very complex people and organisms. And there were some amazing things about my childhood and I absolutely loved it. And I mourn that my own kids weren't raised the way that I was raised in many, many respects like not watching television, not playing video games and playing outside and learning to play the piano instead. But there's great swaths of my childhood that I'm glad that my kids never had to experience. And so, you know, I am a product of that. And I can't look at it and say, no, that's inherently evil. Everything in my childhood, everything in my life, everything in my DNA is inherently evil. And I must 
overcome all of it in order to be a worthy human being. I just, I don't believe it. And I don't believe it if anybody from any culture. Yeah. And, and my experience with Roy and with other people has made me pay attention to the narratives that we tell and how we rescue people. Anything that is so binary that doesn't allow people to be more whole and complete, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to sign off on because of my experiences. I also think that you're right about, about people checking their motives. I mean, I've said this on this podcast, but I thought polygamy was something that affected me as an LDS woman and I hated it and that I was well within my right to critique it. And now after going years of just exploring this topic, I realized that this was really just about my own marriage and my own unhappiness with the Mormon marriage system. And I couldn't attack it because I was married to a good man. Um, I didn't know how I didn't have any language to critique the Mormon marriage system. The only way to do that was polygamy. And I've seen that with a lot of women, not to tell their stories for them, but I know a lot of women who are upset with this because of their own sexual trauma, their own uh, feelings of disempowerment. And this is an easy, hard surface to strike against. But the reality is we're talking about people's lives and families, an entire system of individuals with very complex identities and choices and interactions and to let our pain spill out onto them because, you know, we have some things we haven't looked at, I think is irresponsible. And I take yeah. full responsibility for that. I think I've done that. I think I've tried to correct when um, I learn better. And that's the best we can do is hold ourselves accountable and be honest about that. But I, I do think that decriminalization in Utah is – it's not a perfect answer. It's not even a solution, but it's a step towards getting people more help. Do you yeah. guys want to give me some closing thoughts? Well, and I just want to say that, you know, when people are so invested in being right about this narrative that it's it's inherently evil and there's nothing good about it then what we do to the people on the inside is such a disservice because because someone on the inside when I was on the inside for example and I would hear somebody saying how absolutely horrifying it all was. And I'd be looking around thinking, oh, no, no, it's not all horrifying. There are one or two things that are horrifying. But what that does is it makes it makes somebody on the inside say "Then nothing you are saying is true because because you're so invested in, in painting this all one, you know, big black horrifying thing. And and so and so it it waters down, you know, when the truth is told. And so I saw this happen with, you know, people who, who fled the FLDS and, and would make up stories like bleed the beast, for example. It's absolutely not true that we were taught that. The first time I ever heard that phrase was on television when they said, this is what they're taught. And I'd be like, are you serious? And so then I couldn't believe anything that happened. And so when the truth was told about Warren Jeffs, I didn't believe that it was the truth. Because there have been so many other lies and people were so invested in all of it being evil. And so I think that we do, I think we do victims a disservice by trying to make their experience all so horrible instead of letting them have, you know, what the truth of what they've gone through be bad enough and stand it is bad enough. And when we have to make up something that's not true so that the world will really think it's bad, then that means we don't really believe it's all that bad either if we have to lie about it. The biggest problems with the current status of polygamy is it has created barriers. I mean, Shirley gives 
gave a great example of her mother having a barrier to medical treatment, a barrier to access to things like a driver's license, things that we consider to be so easy. Um, there's barriers to education. There's barriers to mental health services. Um, and one of the big ones is there's barriers to law enforcement. Good luck telling a woman who is in a polygamous relationship and has children that it is safe for her to report a crime when she is at risk of losing her children. And especially because there's a historic precedent for polygamous women losing their children. That is not an abstract, made-up thing, scare tactic. There is a historic precedent. 153 children were taken out of Short Creek in the 1953 raid. There's only 260 two kids in that area at the time. So it, it's a historic reality that children are taken from women who report crime because they are felons. Um, and there's a lot of trauma that resulted from that too. Yes. Yeah. And so it, it's time to remove the barriers for people to be able to access very real and necessary resources. There is abuse in these communities just as there is abuse everywhere. And to put a what we already talked about how Things like rape are under-prosecuted anyway, but to add an additional barrier to the reporting process and to the prosecution process is unethical. Yeah. I will say that the majority of the, the crime victims we help do not want to report crimes because of that, because they don't want their families to be in their polygamists. And so, you know, when we try to talk people into reporting a crime so that they have access to crime victims reparation, it's an uphill battle. And I would say that, you know, 90% of the time we don't succeed. The one thing that I, I don't think that anyone is paying enough attention to is if there is a difference between this group and, and the Kingstons and we, and Christine and I especially have committed to in understanding that more, but what would you say to victims who left the Kingston group that say that polygamy being a felony was the only thing that gave them courage to come out. How would you respond to that? And, and likewise, how would you respond to helping them get justice for some of their abuse? Because the abuse that I have heard is pretty terrible. I mean, we're talking about forced labor, child labor, exploitation, lots of underage marriage, uh, incest, things like that. So what would you say to people who feel like we're not speaking to their story? Well, I mean, first of all, everything you mentioned is against the law, Melanie. So if they were forced into child labor, if they suffered domestic violence or child abuse or incest or any of those things, let's report those crimes. I, I don't know anybody from the Kingston group. And I, and I would never say, you know, this is, this is what they were afraid of because I got really triggered when somebody tried to tell me what I was afraid of. But, but I would love to, to sit with them and hear their stories and provide them, you know, with, with options for therapy that's culturally competent and non-judgmental. Um, and, and not connect them with somebody who is feeding them a narrative about what they, about the, what they need to say. I just, you know, I, I would love to see them get justice for the crimes that happened, for the things that happened to them that made them victims. Um, but, and if they say they're victims of polygamy, then I'm afraid they're never going to have justice because there is no justice to be had for being a victim of polygamy. Before this bill? Yes, ever. Ever. There is I mean, no justice for that. And I, I agree with Shirley. If you right now are a victim of a violent crime, I, you know, having been a peer educator on abuse, on sex, sexual abuse, it's 
you know, it's a tricky thing to, you can't force someone to report crime, but I would always encourage people to report crime. And statute of limitations is tricky, but if you were a victim of a crime growing up, I would still encourage you to report those crimes. The reality is that abuse in these communities is underreported. It is one thing to make public statements and participate in conferences and like share your story publicly. It is another thing to file a police report um, or a, a report with the state. So if you are a victim of a crime, I am sorry. I believe you. Please report the crime. That is the only way that we can start the process to justice and reparations is to have reports of those crimes. Because right now, people unfortunately do not believe the stories because it is so underreported. Does Cherish Families, can you help uh, victims with that legal process? We absolutely can. Um, so we walk, we walk a victim through reporting a crime if they're willing to. We also walk them through getting safe shelter if they're afraid of their perpetrator. And we go to court with them. We help them file victim statements. We help them get reparations and all kinds of services, including mental health services for any of those crimes. Um, if they need legal services, like if they were forced into an, into a marriage and need to get out of it, we have attorneys that work for us that will help us help them get out of that. And so, you know, there are a lot of services available for, for anyone that would like to report a crime. And even if they didn't want to report, there are a lot of, of things we can help with that can help them become whole in, in their own lives. And so that they're, they have the resources that to deal with that kind of victimization. And, l- and let me just say this too. I don't want to discourage anyone from coming forward with their crimes, but being involved with this in my own community, it is not always the best option for people to go through law enforcement. Sometimes that's more traumatizing and damaging than anything else because of how difficult the the justice system is on victims. So I wouldn't suggest that point blank as the answer to everyone's situation. Not that I want to discourage anyone from seeking justice. I just think that we need to be very careful to take every case on an individual level and make sure that the person who is coming forward, who has the bravery to tell their story to an advocate, the advocate is being responsible and not thinking about funding, not thinking about politics, not thinking about agenda when helping. Surely, I have to say that 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 is why I support you because you do that almost sometimes to my frustration. I'm like, come on, you gotta, you gotta be out there more. But your ethics are really sort of the gold standard. I really, I really do think that. And so I've been really impressed and inspired by you. I, let me ask one more yeah. question because we're, we're getting on. I imagine that this fight is not over. I think this we've given um, the opposition and we're talking about them sort of as this like monolith, which I don't think it is. And again, they're welcome to come on the podcast, but what I won't entertain are personal attacks or I, I don't want to just hear about how the statistics on how bad polygamy is because that's all I've heard is, well, polygamy is so bad, so we should criminalize it. I want you to speak to the specifics of this bill, how this bill helps or harms that uh, those issues and then I will, you know, host a discussion. But if it's going to be personal attacks on how we don't care about victims or polygamy is so bad, great. What are you going to do about it? What solutions do you have? Shirley and Christina, what's next for you? How can people support these efforts? I know it's not simple and I know it's not sexy to fight against the big bad ghost of polygamy, but how do we 
what would you say? How can people get involved and help? Well, I mean, two two ways. I think that first of all, people can get more educated and and examine themselves, examine whether they're prejudicial and whether they you know have microaggressions against against polygamists and what kind of barriers that they erect for for people in in this state who come from polygamy because allowing the communities to come out into the sunshine is going to go a long long way to helping to root out any of those kind of abuses we talked about um but second i mean obviously they can support cherished families we uh we provided way more services than we had funding for last year. And, and so we're constantly trying to, to raise funds to support the various activities we do. Uh, you go to cherishfamilies.org and, and see, really look at our menu of services and, and support us there. And in the interest of full disclosure, you have, you work with the Darger family, a polygamous family who, uh, works with cherished families. You get a lot of criticism for being pro polygamy because of that. But what I've seen is the opposite is it's made it safer for people within these systems to come forward and get resources because honestly, there is nothing for people who are current victims in plural communities unless they leave polygamy. And mm-hmm. that's pretty shameful, I think. Right. I call that extortion. <laughs> you know, that, and that was how the previous bill was written is that it, it's an affirmative defense to polygamy. If someone leaves polygamy and reports abuse, and I'm going, Oh, okay. So if they leave their religion and their home and their identity, then they're worthy of help. I see. That's not nice. <laughs> it just sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> Systems right? repeating themselves. Um, Christina, what would you say? How would you say people can support uh, these efforts? What What do you think is in the future? Uh, are we opening the doors for a safe haven for polygamy in Utah? Uh, yeah, I would once again um, encourage people to support. I would reiterate, support church families, support the organizations that are the boots on the ground, actually doing the work to get people resources um, and to get people therapy, full wraparound resources. There are no other organizations like that. I'm interested in a full decriminalization effort in Utah. I'm interested in a full national decriminalization effort. Full disclosure, I'm interested in a legalization effort. I'm not pro it, but I'm interested in having those conversations. Um, And I'm open to having hard conversations with people. So one of the big first things I would encourage people to do in everything in life, not just with this, is to have hard conversations with people you don't necessarily agree with and learn about the issues. So if you're interested in decriminalization, if you're interested in the pros and cons, legalization, all of that, the history of it, have those conversations. I'm very open to talking to people about it. So reach out to people who are doing that. And in terms of what's next, I'm very interested in bringing back the bill to raise the marriage age in Utah. We had a bill, uh, Representative Angela Romero ran a bill to raise the marriage age in Utah last session, and it did not pass in the way she wanted it to. Um, The hope was to raise, raise the marriage age to 18. For those who don't know and who are upset about underage marriage in polygamy, it is legal to get married at 16 in the state of Utah. So um, that's one of the things that I'm interested in now is kind of reviving a bill to raise our marriage age, because it is true that we do have a problem with underage marriage. Well, thank you for coming on and and for just walking with me in this and for mentoring me and for really, you know, sheltering me this week, even that like, gosh, I, I, I'm kind of fragile, Shirley. I don't know how you do it. Shirley's the queen. (laughs) She really is, man. 
Uh, it's it's really impressive. And so that's why whenever someone's like, oh, you're not a feminist, you don't care about victims. I'm like, you haven't met Shirley Draper. She is truly uh, a force to to reckon with. And I just, you're such an inspiration, Shirley. And I, w- I will say, I just want to remind people, this is a very delicate thing. But if you still are listening to this and you're feeling upset and you're feeling anxious and contentious about it, to me, that's a signal. That's that's data in your brain. It's pointing to something that needs to be looked at. And I don't know if you're an LDS woman and you're so uncomfortable because you're worried, you're so f- afraid that decriminalization somehow opens the door for you, or maybe you've lived it and you haven't gotten the resources or the justice or healing you need. I don't know what it is, but if it's upsetting to you, let that be a guide to look at that, to look at that thing. And, and like I said on Radio West with Doug Fabrizio, This is something, you know, don't let your own fear impede, you know, victims coming forward right now. If if this is something that worries you because it threatens your eternity, let's take that up with church leaders, not legislation. Yep. Amen, my sister. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.